Looking good? Turn to the person next to you and say, I love what you did with your hair today. You too, watching online. Make sure you do that. All right. Even if they haven't got much of it, like me, just encourage them. <laughs> hey, it's good to be back. Uh, we were trying to work out the last time I could be with you, and I think we worked out it was 2017. So much has happened since then, uh, and uh, we all, we're not going to start talking about the, the way we were all locked up for a while. Uh, WA was um, a big a big prison, you know, we had freedom, but just don't leave the state, you know, that's what it was like. So it's so good to be traveling and getting out and about uh, again. <clears throat> For those of you who don't remember, I'm the proud father of seven children. Seven. That's right. Come on. Seven children, five, five girls, two boys, and one wife, and one wife, and... Uh, so uh, when I get home from this trip, a couple of days uh, into the week, we're celebrating my youngest son's getting married to a beautiful young lady. So it's wedding season by the sound of it, if you've had that today. All right. <clears throat> so, yeah, I'm going to remember to look at the camera occasionally, point my finger. That means you too, listening in that other place. I remember Redcliffe, I used to live in Brisbane, but that other suburb, I don't remember, but I'm thinking of you too. All right, who's ready for the Word of God? My, my wife, she was here, say, don't get up there and start preaching straight away. Give the people time to connect with you. So are you connected yet? All right, if you're not, hurry up, all right? I'm a nice person, just take my word for it, <laughs> all right? Okay, so let's pray. So, Father God, thank you for the life and liberty and release of your spirit in this place. Not just another sermon, but a word from you to our hearts and lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's how I want to begin. If... We were to take the stories of the Bible, particularly the stories of the Old Testament, and make them into a movie, what rating would you think most of them would be? Well, if you know your Bible, you would know most of them would have MA plus rating. But so we've censored those right down. We don't tell them like that in children's church. We would traumatize our children if we told the story exactly like uh, it, it was in the Bible. Yeah, the, you know, the, the angel of death passing over Egypt, all the firstborn. Come on, this, was, this is the story of the Passover and the walls of Jericho. We love that story. But what about the plunder of the city afterwards? And one of my favorites is David and Goliath. Wow, have we censored that down to a G rating, that one. You know, he only stunned him with the stone. He only knocked him out. So he was alive when he's getting his sword standing on his chest, 
Judge Levine went first, and you know, he was only about 16, 17, so it took a couple of hacks, and then he lifts up the head to the roar of the crowd with a beautiful war trophy. Tell that to little Johnny as a bedtime story. <laughs> Good night, Johnny. It's like, okay, Johnny's not going to sleep there. Well, um, <clears throat> And, and then we think of uh, some of the, the things that Jesus said, which he obviously intended to be metaphors, but sometimes in our desire to take the Bible seriously, we've taken it literally. Okay, so you want literal? Well, then Jesus said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, so for for our altar call this morning, I've arranged this guillotine to be warm. And say, come forth, you know, you who have had a rough week, we're going to... And so, obviously, we know that was, that was not meant to be taken literally, but he did say it. He did say it, but what did he mean when he said it? What did he mean when he said it? And so, the Bible, my point is, the Bible does contain some confusing and even dangerous... Uh, things when we read them with no revelation of the heart of the God it's intended to reveal. When we read our Bible with a disconnect from the heart of the God that it's intended to reveal, we can end up in a very different place to, to where God intended us. Let's remember that our Bible is actually a collection of ancient books, songs, history, poetry, prophetic symbolism, uh, all written by people with the worldview of their time. With the worldview of their time, all right? So we need to understand that. So the Bible cover to cover is really a record of mankind's progressive revelation of God culminating in the ultimate revelation of God in the living word which was Jesus Christ. One of the things that I find disappointing about the Bible is that it didn't come with sound effects. Because we miss things that are very significant because there's no soundtrack. You know, when you're watching a movie, the movie is helping you with the soundtrack. What can appear very boring and ordinary, you are now highlighted, oh, that's important. Guy gets in a car, opens the glove box, takes it in an envelope, puts it in his pocket. Boring. But you add music to that. Oh my goodness, he put an envelope. Yeah, I, I saw it. He put an envelope. I saw it. He put an envelope in his pocket. And so. From time to time, I'm going to add sound effects this morning. Is that all right? Because, you know, you go, mm -hmm. I'm going to have to add sound effects so you realize, hey, listen, that's, wow, I need to think about that. So, so what is our Bible? It's, da, 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 da. it's mankind's um, progressive revelation of God culminating in the final Final revelation of God 
through the living word, Jesus Christ. So here it is. It isn't that God changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's that people's understanding of God changed. That's what changed. So the written word is this progressive revelation leading to the ultimate revelation of the coming uh, of Jesus Christ, who is the living word. So anything, anything you thought you knew about God is wrong if it doesn't look like Jesus. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Why? Because when Jesus came, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you're sitting here with some thoughts in your mind about a God that doesn't look like Jesus, and it's wrong. It's wrong. What you've got is an illusionary impression of what God is actually like because the written word is a progressive revelation of God leading up to the ultimate revelation uh, being the living word, Jesus Christ. Jesus was very clear about this. He said in John 5, you are busy analyzing the scriptures, the written word, pouring over the written word, thinking that if you pour over it enough, you're going to get eternal life. Everything you read points to me. Yet you refuse to come to me so I can give you the life you're looking for, eternal life. So we need to look where Jesus is pointing to see that the actual power of Christianity is not in the verses of the Bible. The actual power of Christianity is in the God that the verses of the Bible are pointing to. All right? And so we could say, that when the living word is given his place, the written word falls into its place. And you might say, okay, what do you mean, David? I'm saying that you can go to any bookshop or many bookshops and purchase a book called the Bible, but to read its contents without knowing the living word could have you totally misreading what was intended. And the Pharisees found this out when the living word turned up. <laughs> they were so far off course. <clears throat> there, yes, there is a verse in the Bible that says a woman caught in adultery should be put to death. But when the living word turned up, it ended up in a very different place, didn't it? All right. Yes, there is a verse in the Bible that <clears throat> tells us you know, don't work on the Sabbath or the seventh day. But when the living word turned up, he said, guys, this wasn't meant to be a burden. It was meant to be a blessing. It was about giving you a day of rest, all right? Um, and so I've, I'm going to stand up here and say the definition of abuse is when you take something for uh, that was intended for a certain purse a purpose and use it for something it wasn't intended that's that's abuse and i would say the bible is one of the most abused books in the world and if you don't believe me you don't know your church history 
All right? You don't know it. All right? Sadly, we have to say the Bible is one of the most abused books and its verses have been weaponized to do things that God never intended. All right? And so we need to come back to realize, okay, this is... This is a progressive revelation culminating in the ultimate revelation. And anything I thought I knew about God that doesn't look like Jesus must be wrong because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what is our Bible? It's a beautiful story about the Creator restoring into relationships the humans that He made and loves and wants for Himself. But it seems that we've majored on minors sometimes <laughs> and largely missed the point. Missing the point like thinking that on the cross, God was saying to us, I love you so much that I want to rescue you from my desire to punish you. And that's not what the cross was about. That wasn't what it was happening. Missing the point like thinking, that Father God had to have the innocent blood of his son to appease his wrath against us, but it's okay now. He vented his anger on Jesus, and now he loves us. No, God's always loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only gotten son. So those, those renditions I, go, I just gave you are not Christianity, they're paganism. The, the sort that the ancient tribes believed they needed to ward off the judgment of their gods to secure the favor uh, by offering up a human sacrifice. But that's all nonsense. God is not a punishing judge. Never was, never was. He is a merciful father. How do we know that? Well, when Jesus, the living word, God the Son turned up and told us a story about Father. He had him running down the road to embrace the prodigal. Now, I think that's, if, if God the Son is telling a story about God the Father, I think we should listen. So, so we have a heavenly Father who, as soon as you turn back towards him. You've messed up. You've been in the pig pens of life. As soon as you turn, we have a heavenly father who isn't thinking, I'm going to punish you for that. You are in the sin bin. No, I'm going to leave you there and reject you. for. No, we have a heavenly father who, what? as soon as you turn, he's running towards you and putting the ring on your finger, shoes on your feet, restoration of relationship immediately. So I don't know where we got all that stuff from, but it's high time we hit the flush button. <laughs> that was just so not right. A bad representation of God. God wins us with love, not with threats, and accepts us while we're sinners and heals us with hugs not beatings. And so I said all that to now say what I really wanted to get up here and say this morning. That was just to, to, 
to get us on the right foundation because if we start reading the Word of God on another punishing God, going to get your traffic ticket God, all right, you're going to end up somewhere different. But Paul tells us that we should be rooted and established in love and standing on that unshakable understanding that our God loves us. We're now going to read what could be a confusing verse of Scripture in the Bible. You ready? Most of you would know it for sure because it's taken from what we've come to call the Lord's Prayer. He didn't call it that, but we call it that. It's a teaching prayer. And there is a curious line in that prayer. I don't know whether you've ever noticed it and thought about it. Where Jesus has us saying to Father God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And you think, well, yeah, is that so bad? Well, think about it. That implies that he could and he would. And now you're asking him not to. <laughs> so is that right? I mean, would God do that? Well, Jesus knew for sure that that can happen because he's talking from experience. Now, he was uh, driven into the wilderness, it says there in Mark chapter 1. Uh, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness um, and, uh, for 40 days and being tempted of Satan. Now, the passage translation helps us a little bit because it changes it to uh, Matthew 6, uh, 13. The, the Passion says, Do not lead us into the ordeal of testing. All right, so that helps a little bit. Don't, you know. Lead us not into temptation. Now, don't lead us into times of testing. So the question becomes, why would God want to do that? And now we're telling, asking him not to do that. All right, why would God see that as necessary? Well, for the same reason that he's done it for countless people through centuries, and that is... He, want, he will lead you into time of testing, not for punishment, but for humility. Dun, 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 dun. Humility. Keeping you in a place of humility, desiring to keep you, is really important to God. Really important. All right? Uh, Look at this verse in Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for those 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character. And then the Apostle Paul, talking about his time of testing, explains it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, The, the extraordinary level of revelation I have received is no reason for me to be exalted, for this is the reason... A thorn in my flesh was given to me. The adversary's messenger sent to harass me, keeping me from becoming a fathead. I put that in there. He received all this revelation and he knew that he could get a fathead. God knew he could get a fathead. So God said, you know what? I'm going to make sure that you go through a time of testing not to punish you, but to keep you 
in humility. Now, why does God, why is your humility so important to God? Is God an egomaniac that wants to have us groveling at his feet and uh, he really likes that? No, I'll tell you why. Because humility is the one place where God continues to put grace on you. You move out of that, you moved out of the place where grace can fall continually on your life. Look at James 4. For he continues to pour out more and more grace on us, for it says God resists you when you're proud, but continually pours out grace when you are humble. Listen, some of you aren't getting excited about it. Yeah, yeah, you know that Bible verse. Well, you don't know. You've forgotten what grace is. You're still back in amazing grace, how sweet the sound, and you think it's all about a salvation. Oh, no, no, no. Grace is God's enabling power to take your natural ability and turn it into something supernatural. Grace is taking a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish, and f feeding 5,000 people. That's, that's the power of grace. And if you think you can do without it, then you're proud. You're proud. You've already moved yourself out of the place where God can grace you. You're on your own. That's a scary place to be, all right? God wants to keep you. So this is the love of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God. He's saying to us, if you move out of that place, I can't endorse it. I can't smile on it. I can't put my favor on it because that would just consolidate you in your prideful attitude, all right? So grace is God's enabling power um, that comes on us. So why is God only giving grace to the humble? Well, let's understand what humility is. Humility is not weakness. It's knowing who you are in the light of who God is. It's knowing who you are in the light of... I love the metaphor Jesus gave us in John 15. Humility is the branch knowing I need to stay connected to the vine because that's my life source. That's the source of my fruit. If I disconnect from this, I've cut myself off from... That's humility, knowing who you are in the light of who God is. The humble person knows they receive everything on the basis... Uh, of what God has done and nothing on the basis of what they can do. The humble person knows that God's promise to forgive and cleanse and empower has nothing to do with their performance. If you think you're earning God's grace, you're proud because you're trusting in your performance, not in the finished work of the cross. If you think God's using you because what you've done, then you're trusting in what you've done, not what Christ has done. The humble know that no amount of prayer, Bible study, or obedience can make them any more acceptable to God than they are right now by the blood of Jesus. They know that. That's very humbling. 
That's why we grateful. That's why we worship. The humble know that they don't use their faith to get anything from God. They're not using their faith to get God to do things for them. The humble are using their faith to receive what's been done for them. All right. Now, by comparison, the proud believe that God is only being good to them in response to them being good. <laughs> and so in reality, they're not trusting in God. They're trusting in themselves. God's being good to me because I was good to him. The proud have developed what, what some would call a transactional relationship with God. What does that mean? Well, they believe that they can manipulate the way God behaves towards them by the way they behave towards him. And they view praying, serving, giving as a transaction. I prayed, I get. I give, I get. I serve and God responds to me by giving things to me. Well, guess what? That's not grace, that's a transaction. So if I can just do do enough prayer, if I can just do do enough Bible reading and good deeds and get all my doo-doo together and stand on top of my doo-doo, I have given myself the mental permission to barter with God based on all this doo-doo I've collected. Look at that, you know, God... I'm close to you. Look at all that I've done. So, so God sees these transactional efforts as nothing more than unbelief in the power of the blood of Jesus. And so he has no choice but to resist that person because if he was to give that person on the base of their do-do believing, he's keeping them locked into that prideful attitude. So... So what am I saying? When we understand the grace of God, it removes all pride because it's not about us and it's not about what we can do. It's about what God has done. It's about his loving kindness. It's about his mercy. And mercy can only truly be mercy when you don't deserve it. When you don't deserve it, that's, that's when it's mercy. Okay, so let me bring together all I'm saying. I'm saying that God is so passionate, so loving about keeping us in a place of humility that he will lead you into a time of testing. And those times of testings are not forms of punishment. Neither are they about humiliation or disgrace or disaster or disease. Put that out of your mind. These times of testings are an act of that we would liken it to refiner's fire. Refiner's fire. These tests are circumstances that are intended to bring us to the place where we drop to our knees, where we surrender our egos and come back to the heart position where God has his rightful place as God in our lives. So why is God's so passionate about keeping us in humility because it's the only place, the only place where God will continually pour out his grace. You want grace on your business? You want grace on your life? You want, then I'm telling you, 
how to get it, how to receive it. Keep yourself in a position of humility. And you might say, wait a minute. We got a bit off track here, David. You started this sermon by saying Jesus is teaching us to pray. Father God, lead me not. Now are you suggesting we should be saying, come on, God, bring me. Well, no, Jesus had it right. We're meant to be praying, Father God, don't lead me into a time of testing. You know why? Here's another dun, 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 dun. Because God would much rather you humble yourself. Not have him do it. That's a default. Why don't we know how to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? First Peter 5, 6. Therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And guess what? You are now in a position where God can exalt you in due time. Perhaps the best way to convey the work of humbling ourselves and choosing to, to do that for ourselves rather than have God do it is to tell a story from my teenage years. I am a proud Queenslander by birth and, uh, and spent a fair amount of my teen years in Cairns, North Queensland, actually. And uh, we would uh, go to school, ride our bikes, and we were surrounded by sugar cane. Green sugarcane all year long. If we got that day, oh, well, gee, look at that. That's deja vu for me. Wow. What a great place to live. And all year long, we'd watch the farmers watering their crop, fertilizing their crop. But then at the end of the year, there was always fire. There was always fire. Now, who did that? Well, it may amaze you to know the person who did it was the farmer himself. He did it. And he did it because he knew that during the year all this chaff had built up around the crop. And if he took it to the mill with all that chaff, it was going to be rejected. So he said, you know what? I'll do it. I'll burn up the chaff that I know is collected. He chose to deal with the chaff himself. And that's what we're doing when we're humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The symbolism of fire in the Bible is actually not zeal, it's purification. It's separating the genuine from the counterfeit. And so I'm going to be the first to admit this morning, after 43 years of doing what I'm doing right now, a lot of preaching, a lot of meetings, a lot of worship songs, a lot of this, a lot of that, 43 years is a long time if I wasn't careful for chaff to develop around my life. So I'll be the first to admit if, if anyone needs the fire of God, and I welcome it to come and touch my life again and again and again. It's me. Because I could 
Coming to church with the wrong attitude doesn't guarantee it's going to soften your heart. It'll actually harden it. That's how you get calluses, that constant resistance to something. It doesn't soften it, it hardens it. And so I'll be the first to say, I want the fire of God to purify my motives and keep me in touch, keep my heart soft and in touch with the reality of who God is and all that Jesus has done for me and my reliance as a branch upon the life of the vine, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the singers and musicians to come back and, and help me.